Daniel chapter 3. This evening we are continuing our study in the book of Daniel. Daniel teaches us about serving God in dark times. And uh, as always, we'll have a little short recap to kind of condense what we've learned. Not through all through ta- all, through, <laughs> all two chapters, uh, because it took us, what, four Four Wednesday. It took us a month to get through chapter two, uh, and that was a condensed breakdown of the chapter. And so, uh, uh, chapter three, we should make it through this evening. Very familiar story uh, here in Daniel chapter three. Let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God this evening. Daniel chapter three. We're going to read the whole chapter, starting in verse one. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, and captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye will fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou has set up. Let's stop here. Let's pray and then we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening and we're so grateful for the opportunity to read your word and to study it. Lord, I pray now that you'll be with us. Speak through us as we preach what you have helped us to prepare. Help us not to preach our own opinion, but to be faithful to preach your book. I pray that you would help us, encourage us tonight to trust in you even more as we study the life of Daniel and the book that you inspired him to write. Lord, we love you and thank you for loving us. In Christ's name, amen and amen. You can be seated. Thanks for standing in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Uh, we, if you'll remember, just very briefly, the book of Daniel opens with the captivity of Israel approximately around 606 B.C. The book is broken into two parts. Anybody remember the first part? History, historical, and that covers chapters 1 through 6. And the second part, prophecy or prophetic, chapter 7 through 12. Now, there's some prophecy seen in chapters 1 through 6. There's some history referenced in chapter 7 through 12. But the simple division of the book of Daniel will help us if we remember that history is 1 through 6 and prophecy is 7 through 12. The events that are recorded in chapter 3 occurred about 20 to 23 years after chapter 2 ended. 
Now, remember, chapter 2 is about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, the statue with his head of gold, and then the body broken down into several different types. There were four different metal types and four different parts of that body, as we saw, and we studied that over several... Uh, well, over last week, we covered all of those areas, those empires. Uh, we at least got opportunity to reference them. Now, I've heard it pre- and I know that you may have heard it preached that, that Nebuchadnezzar built this image of gold because of that dream. Nowhere do we see that in the Scripture. You say, well, it's chapter 3 and there's chapter 2. But we do understand that there are years that happen and occur in the Old Testament, especially between chapters, amen? And even in the New Testament, everything that happens is recorded for us, but that doesn't mean that it happened the very next day. Amen. It's important that we understand that. Because if chapter 3 occurred immediately following the dream, then one of two things is true. Either the Bible is incorrect or Nebuchadnezzar lied. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 46. Chapter 2 and verse 46. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. So now, Nebuchadnezzar, after Daniel is used to interpret the dream, is confessing that Daniel's God is God, capital G, of all gods, little g, capital Lord L, of kings, little k, and the revealer of secrets. Now, all of a sudden, chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has a different mindset. Now, the only thing that really could have affected this was his belief. And back during the Babylonian days and during those ancient days when kings would go in and overtake a land, and especially when they destroyed the place of worship for those people, they viewed that as an affirmation that their gods were better than the ones that they overtook because they weren't able to protect them. Little did Nebuchadnezzar know God had already left Israel because that's what Israel wanted. They wanted to follow after idols. And so that's why it's estimated 20 to 23 years after the account of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar has already been back to Jerusalem twice after the dream and uh, ransacked Israel the first time and the second time burned the temple to the ground, which would be a very good explanation as to why he was ready to have what we're going to see this evening. Uh, it's highly unlikely that the dream encouraged the building of this image in chapter 3. Although he may have remembered the dream, he may have remembered an image 20 to 23 years later after two uh, battles against Israel and defeating them and burning down their uh, temple, the temple of God, it was very likely that he did not believe any longer, rather, that Daniel's God was of all that great importance if he didn't protect his people. And that was the mindset back then. You know, people still have that mindset today. People still think that way today. In the Gentile world, as we look and as we live and we're just uh, uh, travelers, we're, we're just sojourners and travelers, this is not our home. How does the heathen world look at Christianity? Well, they're just filled with a bunch of poor people that give everything they have and God hasn't prospered them. God hasn't protected them. God hasn't done that. Obviously, God doesn't care about prayer in schools or He would have struck His wrath. God doesn't prayer, uh, care about the Ten Commandments in school. That's the mentality. That's the mentality of a godless, they're not soulless, but rather a, a, a spiritually dead group of people. They have no idea. We were teaching the kids uh, in uh, uh, class this morning. Uh, I get the opportunity to teach their Bible to them before I go to work. And we're in the parables. And uh, uh, I'm, I know you probably know the stories uh, in Miss Bonnie and the Becca parables. Uh, uh, 
series where they talk about the different parables and what is a parable. It's a heaven, it's a, a story, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And only people who believe God understand those meanings. Well, it's the same thing back in the Old Testament. Only people that believed God recognized that just because you were prosperous didn't mean that you were godly. Just because that you were prosperous didn't mean that God was on your side. Matter of fact, it was not really ever that way. Although God did prosper and does prosper as only prospers us differently than the world. Amen. We don't prosper financially all the time. Although financial prosperity isn't a bad thing, that just means that God requires more financially from you. You understand where we're going with that. Amen. So back now to Daniel chapter three. There's some things in this chapter that we're going to break down and look at over the next 30 minutes that I want us to see together that are extremely important. Number one, I want us to notice the area the area that this statue would be uh, placed, the area. It was called the Plain of Dura. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. And he set it up in the Plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, why would Nebuchadnezzar not set up the image that all the world was to worship in Babylon. Why would he not set it up in the main city? Well, there's two problems. Number one, Babylon is level ground. Babylon is an area of level ground. The area of Babylon was level, and there were no rocky areas to chisel out a statue, uh, much less uh, have one that is head and shoulders above everything else. And the second problem with Babylon are that it was such a great city, the buildings would overshadow what Nebuchadnezzar was wanting built. You know what Nebuchadnezzar wants at this point? He is the ruler of the entire world. He desired to be remembered in a more permanent fashion. He desired to be remembered in a more permanent fashion. Why else would you build a statue? He wanted to be remembered. It's evident that Nebuchadnezzar had reached a point in his career where he wished to be memorialized as the kings of Egypt that he had seen been memorialized. Because remember, Babylon is the world power. They took over Egypt. Amen? They beat them out. They've seen the pyramids. They've seen the statues. They saw the great sphinx. They saw all those things. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted that. That's why he's got the statue being built. The plain of Dura suited best because of its separation from the city. Due to Nebuchadnezzar's desire for a unified world, we also see that he was trying to establish a state religion. You say, well, where is that in the text? Well, we're getting there. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar's trying to establish a state religion. Now, we're going to move very quickly. It may not even take us 30 minutes. Point number two, we've noticed the area. Now, I want us to notice the image. Back to chapter uh, 3, verse 1. The king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits. Anybody know how much three score cubits is? What three score is? If you know it, say it. It's, well, how many cubits, though, is it? It's 60 cubits. It'd be 60 cubits. That's very, it's important as we continue. And the breadth thereof... Six cubits. But yes, you're right, 90 feet, because it was a tower of a, of a statue. Amen. And he set it up in the plain of Dur in the province of Babylon. Now, this image consisted of some key elements that Scripture teaches. Number one, it was gold. It was made of gold. Gold, obviously, being that which shows wealth, which shows prosperity. He wanted the image to be gold. Now, Bible skeptics would say there's no way that Babylon could have built a 90-foot statue out of pure gold. But the Bible doesn't say that he built it out of pure solid gold. Never said that it was gold. Most likely it was a wooden statue that was plated in gold. Although, in those days, it would not have been... Um, it would not have been 
hard for Babylon, the leading world power that took the riches of all the world and destroyed all the world's wonderful temples and things of that nature to take all that they had stolen or gotten from their the spoils of battle and created this 90 to 95 foot uh, golden image. But obviously they probably plated it with gold. But the gold is the important thing. The second important thing about the image is that it's 60 cubits, so it's three score cubits, which is 60 cubits by 6 cubits. Scripture, we understand that 6 is the number of man. 6 falls before the number 7. 7 being the number of God's perfect completion. Revelation 13 and verse 18, this should start to tie together a little bit for us. Turn there with me, if you will. Revelation chapter 13 and look at verse 18. Now remember, I said chapters 1 through 6 are historical, but there's some prophecy in there. I hope you're paying attention. All that we're talking about is going to mean something if, if you're sticking with me. Amen? Revelation chapter 13, look at verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of who? The beast. For it is the number of a man. And his number is six hundred, three score, and six. Now, we all know the mark of the beast and all of those different prophecies that we talk about and have heard about and have read about. And the number of the beast is six, six, six. Now, I know I've always heard it preached. Uh, well, I haven't always heard it preached, but I've mostly heard it preached that in the tribulation, if you are uh, uh, left behind, so to speak, great delusion is going to come to you. There's no chance that you can get saved in the tribulation. Let me just clear that up for you. I know what Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins says, but they're wrong. Amen. The Bible doesn't say that people that have had the opportunity to hear the gospel and have rejected Jesus Christ will all of a sudden realize, hey, my my wife has disappeared. She's been a Christian all her life. I'm going to have to not take the mark so I can be... That's not how it's going to work. Strong delusion is going to be sent from God. Strong delusion is going to be sent from God. Now, all of those people, if they wish to buy and sell during the time of the tribulation, are going to have to take what's called the mark of the beast. And all the, uh, a lot of people, especially when barcodes came out and scanners and technology, they all, everybody thought technology is the mark of the beast. The barcode, it's a tattoo, it's the mark of the beast. Scripturally, and I'm just giving, this is for free. This is a side note. I want you to go home and study it. And Lord willing, we'll come to this place. But the mark of the beast, I believe, scripturally can be proven that it is just simply a mark. Just that. Oh, it's not a number? No, the beast number is 666. That's the mark of the beast. Consider this, the 144,000 Jews that will be sealed. God's going to give them a mark so that they can buy and sell. Is God going to mark them with 666 so they can buy and sell? No. No, He wouldn't mark His own people like that. They're going to have a mark that's going to be similar so people will have no idea until they hear their preaching. Amen? But they'll be able to buy and sell and they'll be protected until God is ready uh, to bring them home. I believe the Bible teaches us and we see that story. There's a story in the Old Testament about the Jews and how the angels went in and slaughtered uh, uh, an entire uh, civilization. And the Jews that were there were protected because they marked themselves with the uh, ink uh, uh, were marked on the head. Consider this as well. All the world religions... All these people who don't believe, you know, 666 is a superstitious number in all these religions, Catholicism. But what is something that Catholicism and Muslims and Hindus and some of those religions have in common that they already practice that could be used in the time of tribulation to deceive them to follow after the Antichrist and to take a mark? They already have opportunities or different times and seasons where they worship. For the Catholics, they have ash... Wednesday. What do they do on Ash Wednesday? They place a dot of ash on their forehead. Amen? Think of that. What do the Hindus use as their mark to symbolize? There's a dot on their head. You see where we're going with that? Do you see how these different religions are already prepared for the Antichrist to come in and to set up his one world religion? Why are we talking about this? Because that's the picture Nebuchadnezzar gives us. Look at this image. It's 60 cubits... By six cubits, six being the number of man. 
One, uh, Clarence Larkin, I believe, said, little did Nebuchadnezzar know that the erection of that golden image on the plain of Dura was a prophetic foreshadowing of that image that the false prophet shall command the people to make, uh, to make, to mark, to the, to make to the beast or antichrist. An image that shall be given life and the power to speak and all who will not worship the beast shall be killed, but by, uh, not by being thrown into a fiery furnace, but by a guillotine. During the time of tribulation, there's going to be a statue that will be built, and it will be built to uh, mark the image of the beast or the Antichrist, and that image will come to life. And there will be one requirement for all the people of the world bow down and worship the beast. And if you don't, your head's going to be cut off. Revelation 20 verse 4, write it down for sake of time. Revelation 20 verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. What happens to these who don't worship the image of the beast? Their life is at stake. What happens to those that didn't worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image of himself as he's trying to unify all of this people group in this nation? They'd be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, we've looked at the area. We've looked at the image. Let's consider the dedication. Back to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 verse 4. Then and herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Verse 7, Therefore at that time when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. It is clear in these verses that Nebuchadnezzar had plans to, a, to establish a state or a, at that time, a world religion by which he intended to unify his diverse kingdom. Consider it. Consider how he overtook all of these lands and notice who he calls to the ceremony of this dedication. Verse 2, the princes the governors, captains, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Who did Nebuchadnezzar want there? Anybody in his kingdom that had authority. Anybody that had authority. This is why it's so important that we pray for those that are in rule over us. This is why it's so important that regardless of what side of the aisle you vote on, you pray for those that are in authority over you because Satan and his spirit of Antichrist is trying to turn this world against God and he's doing a good job of it. God's people need to be praying more than ever for those in authority. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to establish to unify. All men are religious by nature and are easily carried away by anything that stirs their religious feelings. All men are religious by nature. What about, what about atheists? I remember when we moved here, and I think I've shared this with you before. I remember when we first moved here, maybe it was about a year after we moved here, or a few months, there was an ad in the paper for the first atheist church to be established here in the mountains. I think it was in Blairsville, if I'm not mistaken. 
The atheist church, now I don't know if it ever got established, but it was basically uh, uh, an ad or a piece in the paper where an atheist or a group of atheists wanted to start an atheist church. Now, if that is not the biggest oxymoron I've ever heard in my life, but you want to know what the ad said? They don't believe in God, but they miss all the other aspects of organized religion, the fellowship, the camaraderie, the singing together. All of those things that we can only really enjoy if we're in Christ Jesus. They miss it. They want that. Why? Because all men are religious by nature. We have built within us. That's why all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve were kicked out, they had Cain and Abel. What happened? Cain and Abel desired to serve God. The only problem is Cain offered the wrong type of sacrifice. And he wasn't willing to let his pride or ego go. Now, there are movements today that are attempting, just like Nebuchadnezzar, to unite the religions of the world. Consider ecumenicalism. Ecumenicalism. Attempting to unite the Christian realm under the gospel. Well, that sounds good. Well, you preach Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection. You preach Jesus Christ. So why don't you and I join together and form a union based on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That sounds good. Until you realize that you believe in salvation by faith through grace alone. They believe in salvation by working and keeping their good works. That's what they define as the gospel. You have to start with the definition. Oh, okay, you want to do something together? That's great. This, uh, uh, I don't know much about this walk for Jesus. That's why I haven't said much about it there in uh, uh, the fairgrounds. But if you go, and I've looked up some to see what it's about, it's an ecumenical movement. Now, here's something that's very interesting. When liberals mock an ecumenical movement, that, it's, it's, that's just sad. Amen. If a liberal is my... I have liberal pastor friends in Georgia that uh, uh, they were asking the question, what in the world is a walk for Jesus? And then you go and look it up and it's people who are walking united in Jesus Christ to try to promote the gospel. Who are you preaching the gospel to walking around? Amen? You know what we need? We need to walk for Jesus every day. Amen? We need to tell people about the gospel every day. And not, not just, well, one time a year we're going to get some shirts and we're going to sell them and we're going to have us a good concert and feel good and we're going to walk around, but we're going to do it in Jesus' name, so that's okay. That's ecumenicalism. You know why? Because it's trying to unite people under the name of Jesus Christ that they don't serve the same Jesus. You see, that's the problem with ecumenicalism. Hey, you want to know another one? And this is one that that when I, Miss Lynn, I step on my own toes when I have to admit this one. Fundamentalism. Fundamentalism. Uniting the Christian realm under the fundamentals. For years, people say, oh, we're, in, we're independent, fundamental, Baptist. No, we're not fundamentalists. If you studied the organization of the fundamentalist union or movement, it was ecumenical in its day. It was Methodist, it was Church of God, it was Baptist, it was free will, Southern, independent, trying to come together under what they called the four or five fundamentals of Christianity. That's, that's not biblical. Other denominations that don't believe like us on the Word of God, you know what the Bible says? An heretic after the first and second admonition? Reject. Amen. Light is to have no fellowship with darkness. And if we're honest, then we need to understand that based on what we believe the Bible teaches, not my definition of the gospel, the Bible's definition of the gospel, there are a lot of people in uh, those denominations, hey, and even in our own independent Baptist denomination, that are dying and going to hell, but they think they're okay because they measure up to some man-made standard. That's what fundamentalism did for us. Now, that does not negate that does not negate the good that comes out of these movements. But the good never outweighs the bad. Pragmatism is never something that we should strive for. Well, the ends justify the means. That's not biblical. Pragmatism is not... No, the ends do not justify the means. Jesus Christ justifies everything. If it does not go with Him, I don't go with it. Amen? That's where we need to be.
Nebuchadnezzar is trying to unite a one world religion. Others have tried. We mentioned ecumenicalism. We mentioned fundamentalism. The two that would be close to home. One that we could all agree on. Catholicism. Catholicism. Uniting all religions of the world based on minuscule similarities. Did you know, I believe it was two or three years ago, the Pope said that the Muslims are going to go to heaven because they serve the same God that we serve, because they serve Allah the Creator, and we believe that our God is Creator, and so, oh, it's the same God. Really? Well, that's something interesting, because their God says to kill the heathen if he doesn't convert. My God says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind, because he's going to stand or fall before the judgment Catholicism, trying to unite the religions of the world based on minuscule similarities. And then you have humanism. Humanism is trying to unite all peoples by forced acceptance, regardless of conviction. Forced acceptance, regardless of conviction. Do you want to know what we hear most common today when people, especially Christians, start talking about the lifestyle or rather the sin that we see before us. Well, I'm not judging. Why not? The Bible says that we're to judge with righteous judgment. We have the righteous judgment, the judgment of God. Now, hold, that's different from me sitting back going, well, you know, I saw Brother Grant the other day, and I would not be doing that. That's not righteous judgment. Amen? That's the beam in your own eye before you get the, the, the stick out of another, amen, the moat out of your own eye. Righteous judgment is when you look and you see a world that's depraved and totally turned away from God and you determine, you know what? Sodomy is still a sin. And those people need Jesus Christ. It's still a sin. Alcoholics are sinners and they need Jesus Christ. If they got saved at a young age and they're still alcoholics, then they need to come back to Christ. They need to clean up and make things right. Druggies are sinners and they need Jesus Christ. But you see, we live in a humanist age where it's, oh, that's not okay. You're going to offend somebody. It's a forced acceptance. So these are just some examples. The problem with all man-made efforts of uniting people is there's a lack of Christ-likeness. And it's the fullness of Canaanites, or uh, uh, as one author puts it, Canaanitism. Amen? What did Cain and Abel's sacrifices differ in? There was something missing from Cain's sacrifice that was in Abel's. And it ultimately boils down to it was blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood. You can't please God if you don't offer the sacrifice that pleases Him. You know what Cain said? Oh, there's all kinds. Well, it was from the work of his own hand. He was producing works. Yes, that's true. That's another thing that differed. But the main thing was they were missing the powerful agent that God showed them that they needed. And it was the blood. It's amazing to me. Churches don't preach about the blood of Jesus anymore. We don't talk about hell. But we'll talk about heaven all the time. And it's a wonderful place and it's encouraging and it's uplifting. But did you know the Bible talks more about hell than it does heaven? We don't talk about that which has power. 2 Timothy, look with me. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're almost done. We're almost to the encouraging part. Amen? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, side note, as you're turning there, I'm not mad at anybody that calls himself a fundamentalist. And I'm not separate. They're closer to what we are than anything else. Amen? So again, I'm not saying that the bad, neg- or that the bad negates the good, but the, we, can't, we have to be factual. We have to be honest. Amen? We can't just go around with blinders because, well, it produced Billy Sunday. Y- you know what I mean? You understand what I'm saying? Oh, Dale Moody was a fundamentalist. Yeah, and he also said that in the uh, after uh, all of his meetings, wasn't he the one? No, that was George Whitfield. Never mind. I, I said all of his uh, chickens had turned to ducks or vice versa. Anybody remember that? That saying, because all of those that he had converted uh, to Protestantism, they turned and became Baptists. They became Baptists because they were reading the Word of God. It's interesting. We studied that out. But anyway, we have to be honest with ourselves. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This know also, then the last days perilous times shall come. Now God, through Paul, is getting ready to tell Timothy what's going to happen in the last days. 
There are 18 signs of the end of times here in these seven verses. Look at verse 2. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Hey, look at this one. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Oh, you holy Joe, all you want to do is just serve God, don't you? You just want to go to church all the time. Guilty conscience, amen? Despisers of those that are good. Traitors. Heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Where they look like Christians but they deny the source of the power that they have. From, sir, from such, what's it say? What are those two words at the end of verse 5? Everyone say it out loud. From such, turn away. Does it say to walk with them because it's in the name of Jesus? Does it say to march with them because they're doing it? Well, at least the gospel's being presented. From such, turn away. Testimony means something. Character matters. Amen? God still wants some people who are separated, holy, living a life that reflects Him, not the world. The last thing we need are more Christians that look like the world so the world will accept them. Friend, I don't want the world to accept me. If anything, I'm trying to go the opposite direction. If the world starts accepting us as Christians, we're doing something wrong because Jesus said, they hate me, surely they'll hate you. They don't want anything to do with Christianity. It's very important we understand. We see the dedication. The dedication of this one world religion as Nebuchadnezzar, back to Daniel chapter 3, tries to get everyone to rally and to worship His image. Now we see the righteous. Look at Daniel chapter 3 and verse 8. Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. Jump down to verse 12 quickly. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set. A couple of things that we see uh, that we see about the righteous here from Daniel chapter 3, those that are willing to serve God, God's people, something that we can see from this passage that we would all do well to take note. Number one, uh, uh, righteous people will excite the anger of the world powers. It will excite, the righteous person will excite the world powers' anger, their anger. It's going to excite it, ignite it, whatever word you want to use there. It's going to set them off. Why? Well, look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Listen, if you live a life where you just want to be passive and hope that nobody just really conflicts with you, then Christianity's not the life for you. Amen? Christianity's not the life for you. At least not the Christianity of the Bible. Not the Christianity, why? Because it's going to take some standing, which leads us to the second thing. Righteous people will not only cause the world powers to be angry, those that are around them, the heathen, from the king all the way to the pauper, but the righteous man will stand even if he's alone. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. 
Look at their resolve. Consider the whole world. All of the leaders and rulers were bowing before this because they did not want to be thrown into that fiery furnace. Now listen, they didn't have propane like we do, amen? They're not turning on a furnace and it just heats right up. They got wood-burning power, amen? That fiery furnace, I believe, was built right there so when the herald said anybody that does worship is going to be cast into the fiery furnace, they knew exactly what was coming. There was no, oh, well, I didn't hear the herald. I didn't know. And just in case they didn't, look what Nebuchadnezzar said in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now, if ye be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But, If you worship not, you shall be cast in the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? You know what what Nebuchadnezzar did? He gave them another opportunity just in case they didn't hear the music. Just in case they didn't understand the instructions. Oh, he was hot. Amen. He was mad. He was upset. But he wanted to be reasonable and give them the benefit of the doubt. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you hear it and worship, fall down and worship which I, the image which I have made, well, but if you worship not, you'll be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Notice the reply of those that stood alone. Verse 17 Look verse verse 16. Let's look at verse 16 first. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. You know what that word careful means? Full of care. You know what it means? Full of care. That's why the Bible says, Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Make your requests. Amen? Be careful for nothing. Do you know what that means? Don't be filled with care. Do you know what what they're saying? Look, we're not careful to answer thee. It doesn't mean that they were saying, oh, we're flippant with our answer. We don't care what you think. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, we're not worried about our answer. We know what we believe. We're not worried about it. We're not filled with care about our answer. We know whom we have believed. If it be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able. Notice their resolve to stand. If it be so. Do you know what I believe? I believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to die. They were willing to die. Notice verse 17. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able. And He will deliver us from out of thine hand, O King. Verse 18. But if not... Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Do you know what they said? If it be so, God can and will deliver us. But if not, we will die rather than bow down before a false god. We will die before we will join in with the rest of this world and live like the rest of this world and act like the rest. We will die before we follow the rulers that you've set over us. We will die before we would dishonor our God. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. As we continue reading, he commanded, verse 20, the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their hosen, and their hats, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Nebuchadnezzar's fury was so terrible that he charged them to turn up the heat seven times hotter than what it was supposed to be. And so the men that carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the mighty men that bound them, were consumed by the flames of Nebuchadnezzar's own fury. Verse 23, These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. These men, righteous people, will not only excite, will not only excite the world power's anger, they will not only stand alone, but here's the comfort. They will always have God's presence. They will always have God's presence. Look at verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. Verse 25. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Do you know what's interesting about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this fiery furnace? The God that created fire allowed the flames to burn the bindings that were around these men, but it did not so much as get a smell on their clothes. That's what the Bible teaches us. Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. Notice in verse 26... The king, Nebuchadnezzar, had to call them out to get them out of the fire. Notice their binding didn't just burst or get consumed and they come running out of the flame. You want to know why? Because God was with them. Because God was with them. Righteous people would rather be in the fiery furnace of, uh, of desperation with God than to be loosed and partaking of the riches of a worldly kingdom. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar had to say, Come forth and come hither. You know what I believe happened? I believe Jesus said, All right, go ahead. He needs you. He's got something to say that's going to be important. Notice the next verse, 27. Princes, governors, captains, kings of counselors, being gathered together, saw these men. Now remember, all the world rulers are here. They saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into the fire. They witnessed the fury of Nebuchadnezzar. One thing that I forgot to mention, when you talk about righteous people, they will always be discriminated against. If you go back and notice in the first parts in chapters uh, 3, verses 14 through 18, those counselors, those Chaldeans, they came to Nebuchadnezzar and said, there's certain Jews, those Jews, those Jewish men that you put over the province, those people of Jehovah... They were discriminated against. Well, they're all here. Verse 27. Saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was an hair of their head singed, neither were their clothes changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. You know what's interesting? That it doesn't matter what it is. Even God's creation has no power over righteous people if God doesn't want it to. God's fire. These men were thrown into a flame that consumed mighty men as soon as they tossed them into it. Burned that which restrained them and yet there was not even the smell of fire on them. Verse 28, Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own. 
The toleration of God's people was not simply brought out for the Babylonians. That's what God taught Nebuchadnezzar and these that discriminated against him. Because ever since Daniel, even before that, they hated the Jews. You know why? Because Satan hates them. Because they're God's chosen people. The apple of his eye. Now, blindness in part has happened to him. But God taught the Gentile nation of Babylon and then recorded it so not only Babylon would know, but recorded it in history for all the Gentile nations to understand that God's people were to not be messed with. Because if you do, God is still in control. God will either protect them or wipe you out. One of the two is going to happen. This is why it's so very important that we, as saved people, recognize that Israel is still God's chosen people. God's not done with them yet. We didn't replace them. God's protecting them. Does that mean everything they do is right? No. You know, in Israel right now, it is, uh, they're trying to make it okay. They're trying to allow gay and lesbian marriage in the nation of Israel. Could you imagine what an offense that is to their God? To our God? Could you imagine? Does that mean we stand and say, oh, well, it must be okay because Israel's doing it? No. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray. We pray for it. Because God's people will always have God's protection until the point where God says, you know what? The times of the Gentiles is over. And I'm going to take out my bride. I'm going to rapture. I'm going to catch away my bride. And then my wrath will be poured out upon the entire world for Israel's sake. God will judge the nations at the end of the tribulation based on how they treat Israel. But here's the application from Daniel chapter 3 for us today. Here's the take home, if you will. God is an ever present help even during the fiery trials. He's proven himself time and time again. He's been there. He's provided. I was encouraged this afternoon and I'll end with this. Someone told me, I I don't know that any of you know him, but a a man told me that uh, I've gotten to know a little bit through the bank and he walked up to me and he, he doesn't know what I'm going through, what I'm praying about. He doesn't know any of those things. He just knows I'm a pastor and I work at the bank. That's all he knows. And he looked at me and he said, I just want to give you a word of encouragement. If God puts something on your heart to do, then you need to trust in him to provide during that. He had no, listen, there's been something that I've been praying about, something I've been, it's just personal, that that not even Beth has known about, but it's just between me and God. And yet he reminded me that if God places it on your heart to do it, then just simply do it. You know why? Because he's going to provide. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Amen. I know that he can care for us. Every.